Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode four in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, The Prophet Joel Fulfilled, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? One of the things we're going to see is just the issue of fulfilled prophecy, that the Old Testament predicted a lot of aspects of the salvation that Jesus came to work. And that included not only Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, but also the spread of the gospel. And before the spread of the gospel is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and, and that also was predicted by the prophet Joel. So we're going to talk about prophecy. We're going to talk about um, also the vital role of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of the very thing we saw in Acts 1.8, which is a theme verse of the entire book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is the power of God um, that moves witnesses uh, to spread the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, let me go ahead and read verses 14 through 21 for us as we begin. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Andy, what's the significance of the fact that it's Peter speaking for the Eleven at this momentous point in the church's history? Well, Peter was the leader of the Twelve. And so in some of the listings of the Twelve Apostles, we even have the word first, Peter. And Peter uh, speaks up and leads and is bold. Uh, And so this is the role for which he was chosen and crafted by Christ, and yet Peter uh, seemingly disqualified himself the night that Jesus was arrested by three times denying that he even knew Jesus, even calling down curses on himself. And so we would think that Peter might be disqualified from this ministry. But here we see the amazing restorative grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, We know in John chapter 21, he gives him three opportunities to profess his love for Christ after he had risen from the dead. And, And Peter Uh, did profess love for Christ, although he was greatly pained by the uh, inquiry. Uh, But I think the number three is significant, Mm. that he denied him three times and was given three times to assert his love. And all three times, Jesus gave him ministry to do, the same ministry, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, etc. And so it would be Peter's role to be the leader of the church at this point. Peter is the one that stands up and gives this great Pentecost sermon. 
Now, as Peter begins to speak, what title does he use to address the crowd here, and what titles will he use later in this same chapter? Well, he's talking to the Jews and those who live in Jerusalem, men of Judea or fellow Jews, those who live in Jerusalem. So this is a message uh, given uh, specifically to the Jewish people. Uh, Peter would be known as the apostle to the Jews, as Paul later would be known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so, again, this is that fulfillment of Jerusalem, first Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And also, as Paul will write very plainly in Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. So there's a sequence here. He's addressing this message to Jewish people. Now, we've referred to this as Peter's sermon, and even some subheadings in certain Bibles will say something like Peter's sermon at Pentecost. How important is preaching in the advance of the gospel throughout the book of Acts, and what does this teach us about some who question the validity of preaching even today? Yeah, preaching is vital. It's the central work that Jesus came to do. It was his top priority in every case. If he could only do one thing with the crowd, it would be to preach the word to them. It was more important than feeding them. It was more important than healing them. Uh, it was the preaching of the word that would save souls. And uh, it's vital for us to understand today. Uh, people might think that preaching has become obsolete because there's so much glitzier forms of entertainment and communication, mm. uh, especially since the digital age, the electronic age and digital age has come upon us. And people are used to rather spectacular sensory experiences, mm. even virtual reality, all kinds of things. And they think preaching has been left in the dust. But what they don't understand is that preaching is the basis of faith. Faith comes by hearing the word. And so the proclamation of the word is vital. This is a theological principle that's very deep. God built the universe by the word of God, by the breath of the of the Lord where the heavens made. And so God is building his church by the proclamation of the word. The most important thing that any church can ever do is to proclaim the word of God and foundationally the gospel, to preach the gospel. And so preaching will never go out of style. It is in this way that uh, souls are saved. Right off the bat, what charge does Peter have to refute? We see this in verse 15. Yeah, well, he makes it very plain that they're not drunk. Hmm. And so there was some mocking going on as um, so, uh, the people heard everyone uh, in their own native language, and they're trying to make sense of it. And this is a ridiculous uh, explanation is that they're drunk, uh, but that doesn't explain the impact on the hearers. Uh, they're saying that the apostles in the church that had spilled out into the streets of Jerusalem were drunk. Mm. Um, but the fact of the matter is uh, it was uh, an effect in the hearers that needed to be explained. They were hearing each of them, the wonders of God in his own native tongue. How does the, the, how do the apostles being drunk explain that? It's, it makes no sense at all, but this is just a satanic counterfeit and uh, false explanation as we've often seen. So Peter stands up and I think rather with a certain measure of humor says, you know, they're not drunk as you suppose, it's only the third hour or, <laughs> you know, since the clock began at effectively six in the morning when the sun rose. So we're talking about nine in the morning. And, you know, the wine that they drank back then, I would think would have a very low alcohol content. So you had to be at it. You had to be going after drunkenness. <laughs> and so it's like, there just hasn't been enough time. It's not time. what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, it's not what's going on. And there just hasn't been enough time. So it's not only that they're not drunk. He goes on to say, hey, this is what's happening here. This is what you're witnessing. He goes about refuting these charges by quoting uh, from the prophet Joel. Verse 16 says, 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. How does this concept of fulfillment of prophecy fit into Peter's defense of Christianity in Acts 2? And how should Christians today use fulfilled prophecy in our own witness to an unbelieving world? Right. I actually know that there's a book. I don't know who wrote it. I, I should have taken the time to look it up. Um, but it's, I think, based on the King James translation of Acts 2.16. And uh, it is uh, the words, this is that. This is that which was spoken by Joel. Mm. And so basically it's saying uh, – the the role of fulfilled prophecy, and so this is this is what makes supernatural uh, make makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. It's supernatural basis in prophetic uh, scripture, uh, the ability to tell the future that is supernatural. So we are time bound individuals. Mm. Uh, Jesus said, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end." So uh, that teaches a linear view of history. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it goes in a certain order. Uh, things follow a certain line. They never double back. We don't believe in time travel. We don't believe in uh, kind of a circular theory of history or cyclical theories or things like that or reincarnation. And there's this endless cycle of, of uh, birth and rebirth. We don't believe in any of that. We believe in a beginning, a middle, and an end. And all of those days were written in God's book before one of them came to be. So given that fact, we don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. James says very very plainly, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And yet the Old Testament prophets saw what was happening, not just tomorrow, but centuries, even mm. a millennia or two in advance. And so fulfilled prophecy is one of the great evidences of the truth of Christianity. Now, this particular aspect has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. That was predicted um, by the prophet Joel. So this verbiage, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, is the motif of fulfilled prophecy. We see the same thing again and again in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see it in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the fulfillment motif, the idea of things being fulfilled. Words were laid out ahead of time by the prophets, and then they are fulfilled later um, by current events. And so that's what's happening here. So it's a strong apologetic for us as well as Christians speaking to the truthfulness, the veracity sure. of what we're proclaiming. Right. And I think the second part of your question was how should we use that today? I think it would be good for us to be very mindful of Old Testament prophecies mm. that were fulfilled. This would not be one of my top uh, prophecies here. I would center on the prophecies around the, the the death and resurrection of Christ. Those are the most important. Yeah. So I would commend um, these prophecies uh, to you. The the most important prophecies. I would look at Daniel chapter seven, uh, verses thirteen and fourteen. The Son of Man vision, which uh, clearly um, depicts the the existence of someone who is fully human but also fully divine, fully God, because he's coming on the clouds of heaven, comes into the presence of almighty God who is seated on the throne and he receives from God the right to be worshiped as God and for all the nations of the earth to serve him, the son of man vision. It is very important because Jesus called himself the son of man again and again. So that's Daniel 7. I would also commend Isaiah 53, which is the clearest example or, or uh, articulation of substitutionary atonement. Mm. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us 
has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would commend Psalm 110, which says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If David calls him, uh, speaking by the spirit, calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So how Jesus could be both the son of David, but also David's Lord, that speaks to the incarnation, Psalm 110. And then we have Psalm 22, which begins with the famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then literally describes crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. So these are key prophecies that we should have, um, you know, to some degree memorized, at least know where they are and what they teach. Um, this is uh, maybe not as significant as those prophecies, but still it's good to know this Joel prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that list is so helpful. And we'll even see Peter quote some of those very passages that you mentioned in uh, subsequent oh, yes. verses. I'm sorry, Psalm 16, the resurrection. How sure. could I miss that Absolutely. one? Absolutely, that's you know, a good one. <laughs> yeah, those those are the five. I think there's yeah. five key um, prophecies. So Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Those are the five key ones. That's great. So let's zero in on this one, even though perhaps it's not one of the, the key prophecies that we would look yep. to in the Old Testament. Uh, Peter does here, and so it's worth our examination. What's mm -hmm. the main idea of the prophecy from Joel, and what's the big difference between the gift mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament right. and what happened here on the day of Pentecost? So the main idea here is the general outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all kinds of people. That's the difference. Um, the Holy Spirit was every bit as alive and active and powerful in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. We should not think that the Spirit popped into existence at the time of Pentecost. Uh, the Spirit was very active from the very, very beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So right from the beginning of the Bible, we have the activity of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then many, many other examples of the Spirit. Uh, for example, uh, the Spirit would uh, came on Saul when he was anointed as king over Israel, and he became a changed man in prediction of Samuel's um, you know, words. He said, the Spirit will come upon you and he'll be a changed man, and then do whatever your hand finds to do, for the Lord will be with you. And he immediately led Israel into a military uh, victory uh, because of the power of the Spirit. And then uh, from time to time, the Spirit would come upon him and he would prophesy, mm. uh, like a, a catatonic state would come over him and he'd maybe lay on the ground and just speak the word of God. And, and the yeah. saying came as Saul also among the prophets. And so we see the activity of the Spirit on the Lord's anointed, on a king. Or you would see the Spirit coming on a prophet, like the Spirit of the Lord would come on Elijah or the Spirit of the Lord would come on, on um, another prophet. Sometimes you would see the Spirit come on a judge like, Sam, uh, like uh, Samson and the Spirit came on him in power and he would tear a lion apart or mm. he would defeat a bunch of Philistines. So we see the activity of the Spirit, but it was localized. And uh, also the spirit could leave. The spirit could uh, no longer be with a man like King Saul. Uh, the spirit had left him and a demon came and tormented Saul. And so David, when he committed that terrible sin with Bathsheba, said in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Hmm. That was a real uh, concern that David had, had, that he would no longer have the uh, spirit on him. Also, it's vital for us to understand the spirit came on the prophets. And so they were moved by the spirit to write what they wrote and they were guarded and protected from error as they wrote Old Testament um, Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament writings. Mm. So the Spirit's active. But what we have in this prophecy in Joel is a universality of the outpouring of the Spirit on all people, even on my servants, both men servants and maid servants, on everybody, common people getting the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, that is what's new here in the prediction of Joel. 
Now, you mentioned it a moment ago, but Joel and Peter both use the language of pouring for mm-hmm. the giving of the Spirit. How does this relate to Romans 5.5 5 that speaks of God's love mm-hmm. being poured into us as well? Yeah, that's a very powerful image, the pouring of the Spirit. And so I, th- I tend to think of it like a flow, like a river that flows or like electricity that flows. And, and so it's a continual kind of experience that we have of walking with God and a sense of the flow of the Spirit. Also, flowing water mm. um, back before electricity would be a source of great power as you could put a water wheel and a factory next to it. And so uh, the power of a river could be used to grind um, grain. Um, also, now we have electricity and electricity flow um, causes um, motors to run, etc. So the idea is one of a continual abiding in the power of God and the Spirit coming on you and guiding you and moving you from, from a, a physical position from point A to point B to go and do something. And then the Spirit comes on you and, and in the power of the Spirit, then you speak words. And so that's where I get the sense of the pouring out of the Spirit. Also, the that there's a lot more that could be given. Mm. Uh, the Spirit is the infinite third person of the Trinity. He has far more he could do on you than he is doing right now. Mm. So the sense is he's holding some back and and there's a sense of a continual flow of an experience of God. And uh, that's what I get with the idea of pouring. Also the sense of rain, like rain pouring down from the heavens and giving life to the earth. Um, all of that comes with the idea of, of pouring. Yeah. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So... It doesn't seem that the giving of the Spirit equally to both men and women necessarily erases any gender distinctions for Mm -hmm. service in the church, though. We're talking about the Spirit coming on a wide variety of people. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to how God can pour out his Spirit equally on all believers and yet still have varying roles of authority and service in the church? Sure. I mean, the only reason we would have a sense of gender-based roles is that it's given to us in the Scripture, and the Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. Mm. The Spirit has told us that men are to lead in the, in the home with husbands being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and that men are to lead uh, as elders in a local church, and that women are not to teach or have authority over men. Uh, those words uh, in, were inspired by the Holy Spirit on the Apostle Paul as he wrote them. And then the consistent pattern of, of male leadership throughout the Bible. It's mm-hmm. not like some anomaly. It's, hmm. it's That was the normal pattern. And so we should not imagine that the same spirit that inspired the 66 books of the Bible would then contradict himself by uh, giving an immediate calling to a woman to do something that's forbidden in the pages of Scripture. And again, we wouldn't think to forbid it. Um, except that there are scriptures that do forbid it. And so, therefore, we we do believe in gender-based roles. We don't think that the outpouring of the Spirit on uh, equally on men and women um, erases those those um, God uh, uh, those God-given roles. I think of them more as channels. If we're going to go back to the image of the Spirit like a liquid, mm. uh, the Spirit's poured out not in a universal flood, but in water that's flowing in intelligent channels to do certain things. And so, the Spirit comes on men and women to enable them to fulfill their God-given roles. So yes, the Spirit's given equally to both men and women, and men and women can be equally displaying the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithful self-control, 
Um, men and women are equally equipped to do the roles God wants them to do. Men and women are are equally um, aware or have the sense of the love of God being poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit, mm. equally adopted, equally going to heaven, all of those things equal, but then different roles. Yeah. Um, now we have to get to the topic of prophecy in a moment because it says, and they will prophesy. So we have to address that. There were female prophets in the New Testament church. And so we need to talk about that. But um, to go to your question, I don't think that the Spirit is eradicating gender-based roles since he is the one who inspired the prophets and the apostles to write those very roles. I will say this one thing. I went to gordon Conwell Seminary and Adoniram Judson Gordon, A.J. Gordon, um, said one of the primary, they, they taught um, what we call egalitarianism, the idea that there really mm. aren't gender-based roles in the church or shouldn't be. Um, and one of the things is how can you say to a spirit-filled woman that what she is sensing this uh, from the spirit, what she is sensing, uh, that she is wrong? Um, how can you stop her from doing that? And the, the thing is that inner sense or feeling that we get may not actually be from the spirit. The spirit will never contradict what he's already inspired um, in his written word. And so the idea, how do you do it? You just say, you're not hearing the spirit properly. That's how you do it. Um, for example, I, I remember a story uh, back in the day when Charles Spurgeon was the most famous preacher uh, on earth uh, and people came from literally all over the world to the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, to hear him preach from the pulpit there. And a man came up to Spurgeon in the middle of the week and said, the, the Spirit has told me that I'm to preach at the Metro Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit this Sunday. And Spurgeon was ready for it and he said, well, that's wonderful, that's fine. When the Spirit tells me also, then you will be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the two of them. Contradictory messages. Yes. Here. One yeah. of the two of them was not hearing the spirit properly. Mm. And that is possible. Yeah. So. so you mentioned that prophecy here at the end of verse uh, 18, mm -hmm. it says is what will flow from this outpouring of the spirit. Mm. Um, talk a little more about that. What's going on here specifically as a result of the spirit being poured out? Right. The overwhelming majority of the, of the prophets that we know of by name in the Old Testament and New Testament are male. Uh, but there are female prophets from time to time. Uh, for example, it seems Isaiah's wife was a prophetess. Hmm. Um, we also have in the days of, of uh, Josiah, uh, the king, there was a female prophetess named Huldah uh, who spoke about Josiah. Um, and so there are godly women who had the spirit of prophecy in them and they were able to speak the words of prophecy. And we have it in the New Testament as well. I think the the... Uh, daughters of Philip, uh, one of the seven, prophesied as well. So you have female prophets in the New Testament. Um, the question is, how could there be a prohibition uh, of women teaching and uh, having authority over men, and yet they're allowed to prophesy? So you have to do a lot of work on this topic of prophecy um, and how it's different than teaching. It is different. Prophecy and teaching are related but different. Prophecy is an immediate act of God on an individual um, in which the Spirit comes upon upon them and they speak the word of God. They speak words from God directly. Mm. So I, I think of the prophet like a table waiter in a five-star Parisian um, restaurant and their only job is to take the meal that was cooked and present it unchanged mm. to the table. Mm. That's not teaching. Teaching involves logic. It involves rationale. It involves training. It involves um, working through. Uh, it's It's got a lower, like, lower um, level of truthfulness 
to it because there's more opinion involved, like James gives in Acts 15, that is my judgment, therefore, that we should do this and that. So you have more judgments and more, more um, estimations going into teaching, et cetera. Um, women are fully capable of making those judgments and those estimations. I'm just telling you how teaching and prophecy are different. Um, so prophecy is just an immediate speaking, thus says the Lord, and out come the words. Mm. Uh, we note that different ones throughout the Bible uh, were, were occasionally tabbed by God to do prophecy, and it didn't say anything about them as individuals. For example, um, <clears throat> Caiaphas spoke the words uh, that it was beneficial for one man mm. to die and the nation not perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest, he prophesied, saying that Christ would die not only for the sins of the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. And while Caiaphas was a thoroughly wicked man, then, of course, not mean to be insulting to anybody, any prophet or prophetess. We've got Balaam's donkey who opened <laughs> his mouth and spoke the word of God. So it doesn't say anything about a person that they're used from time to time to prophesy. Also, um, Saul, in the midst of his rebellion, uh, the spirit came on mm. him and he was hindered from, from carrying out a very hurtful plan. And uh, Saul was among the prophets again one more time. And these are on the ground prophesying. So it doesn't say anything about you one way or the other if you can prophesy. There's just uh, It's just a different gift. So we have to make those distinctions. Scripturally, women were permitted to prophesy in the New Testament church but they were not permitted to teach or have authority over men. Now, there is an open question whether this gift of prophecy even still exists today. Um, I'm, I don't think you can find any scriptural basis for cessationism that prophecy is over or it's finished. I do believe, however, it is reasonable for prophets and prophetesses to submit to the standard test given in Scripture in the Old Testament so that their office could be identified. They have to be able to predict the future. It has to be an independently verifiable prediction of the future, mm. or we cannot know that you're a prophet. I think that's fair. Uh, others that are charismatic today say there are different types of prophecy now than there were then and all that. I still think it's reasonable for the church to expect that the office is validated by an independently verifiable prediction of the future. Mm. But to sum up, um, women and men alike were able to prophesy. Women and men alike received the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, in 1 Timothy 2 and other examples, women are hindered or, or prevented from teaching or having authority over men. Now, this prophesying wasn't the only sign that would come as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Did all the signs referred to in Joel's prophecy take place on the day of Pentecost, or were some yet to be fulfilled? Some say these signs have still yet to be fulfilled and will happen at the end of the world. Do you think mm -hmm. this is the ultimate fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Yeah, I think when you look at the language here, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. You know, this language sometimes is used, used for cataclysmic political shifts hmm. like the falling of, of uh, empires. Uh, like Babylon falling and the Medo-Persian Empire rising in its place, hmm. um, the same type of language is used. Um, so sometimes it's that just that prophetic piction, uh, pictionary type language that happens. Um, but I think Jesus also uses this language in terms of the second coming. So I actually expect that there will be signs in the heavens above right before the second hmm. coming of Christ or right at the, the second coming of Christ. So I think I read these words to be things that have yet to be fulfilled. So yes, cataclysmic shifting with the outpouring of the Spirit, the building of the church of Jesus Christ is a cataclysmic 
cataclysmically significant thing, but you can't see anything. It's just a simple preaching from one person to the next, and they believe and the church grows. Mm. Um, so yes, it's a major earth-shattering event, but you don't see anything. There's no signs in the heavens above and, and blood and fire and vapors of smoke. You don't see any of that, but I think we will see it at the end of the world. Now, would that be what the day of the Lord or the great and magnificent day are referring to? These are major yeah. themes in the Old Testament sure. prophets. Is that what it's signifying here is the end? Yeah, I mean, if if what I just said is true, that we'll see this right before the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ is the final day of the Lord. Now, there are lots of days of the Lord. So again, when Babylon fell, that was the day of the Lord. When, when frankly, the day of the mm. Lord came, when, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, the day of the Lord. And so it's a day when judgment breaks in. I don't think the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah um, was called the day of the Lord, but maybe it was, but that would be a good example of the day of the Lord. Even Noah's flood would be the day of the Lord. Any judgment, inbreaking judgment of God into hu human history is the day of the Lord, but there's a big one coming, the mm -hmm. final one, and that is at the second coming of Christ, the judgment of all the earth. That is the day of the Lord. And in that day, it says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will mm -hmm. separate the people one from another as a shepherd sh separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep in his right and the goats in his left. And at the end, after the judgment, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He'll say that to the goats. And he'll say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He'll say that to the sheep, the mm -hmm. believers. That's the day of the Lord. And that that is the day we have to get ready for. Now, Joel's prophecy concludes this way, saying it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm -hmm. How important is this for Peter's purpose in his sermon? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage? Well, this is a vital, a vital prediction. It's uh, Joel 2.32. Paul um, quotes it m very significantly in Romans chapter 10. Um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is how sinners are saved. And so Paul makes that, that point very plain in uh, Romans 10, 13. Um, earlier it said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how, how can they believe in one of whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So putting it all together, calling on the name of the Lord, the Lord is Jesus, calling on him as Lord, meaning that the belief that Jesus is God, is based on them having heard of him. Hmm. And the hearing is the preaching of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Jesus, his birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his amazing teachings, uh, details of his life so that people know who they, who he is. They can't call on someone, they, they can't believe in someone they've never heard of. And so that information about Jesus, there's a basic biography of Jesus, which uh, doesn't have to be the full gospel of Matthew or the full gospel of Mark, but enough facts about Jesus's life have to be proclaimed and so that people understand who he was, uh, fully God, fully man, sinless, wonder-working, incredible teacher, and then, especially, substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection, bodily resurrection from the grave, these are the facts of Jesus' life. They have to be proclaimed. Hmm. And when those facts are proclaimed, then, at the same time, God gives an amazing gift. 
and that is the gift of spiritual sight, faith, to see the truth about Jesus, though they're not seeing him physically. In hearing, faith comes by hearing the word. As they mm. hear, they can see by faith who Jesus is. He's God, he's fully man, died on the cross, rose again. If I trust in him, my sins will be forgiven. Then you call on the name of that Lord that you've heard about to save save uh, me from my sins. So you call on him, save me, Jesus, forgive me. I confess my sins to you and you call on the name of the Lord. And if you do that, you'll be saved. Mm. So this is essential to what Peter is aiming at in this mm. sermon that he gives on the yeah. day of Pentecost. Any final thoughts for us, Andy? Well, we're going to keep unfolding what it means uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're right in the middle of Peter's great Pentecost sermon. So he's going to unfold more for that. And we'll talk about that next time. Well, this has been episode four in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode five entitled Preaching Christ Crucified and Risen According to Scripture, where we'll discuss Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 36. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.